0: Hey there, it's Gabe Fleischer from May 19th, 2020, just a few days after this episode originally dropped. I wanted to give you a quick heads up. In a few minutes, you'll hear from Politico's Tim Alberta about Congressman Justin Amash running for the Libertarian presidential nomination. We were speaking under the assumption that Amash would be running this year, but a few days after the episode published, he abruptly announced that he had decided not to seek the White House. The analysis in the episode about third parties in 2020 and beyond still stands, and I think it is still relevant and interesting to consider. I hope you enjoy the episode. For most Americans, it's a foregone conclusion. There are two main political parties, Democrats and Republicans, and to get elected to any office from president on down, you have to be a member of one of them. But the last 10 years have brought fresh challenges to the two-party system, Polls show that about 40% of Americans now identify as independents, an all-time high of people disillusioned by the party structures and considering themselves without a place in either. On this episode of Wake Up to Politics, we examine the past and future of the two parties in American politics, with help from two expert guests. We'll start with Lee Drutman, a political scientist who co-hosts the Politics in Question podcast and wrote the new book, Breaking the two party doom loop, the case for multi party democracy in America. He'll share why he believes American democracy could be headed towards the addition of more political parties and why that might be a sorely needed innovation.
1: This is a moment in which it feels like we can't go on as we've been doing. And, you know, when you have a big problem like this, you need a big solution.
0: And then, veteran reporter Tim Alberta the chief political correspondent at Politico will offer a reality check on why Democrats and Republicans are probably here to stay for good, although that doesn't mean the parties won't keep changing and shifting in big
2: ways. I think within those two parties, you are now seeing fracturing and fragmenting in a way that we've never seen before, and that itself is what's changing politics. Could the two-party system
0: be on its last legs, as Lee believes? Or, as Tim says, Are they just too big to fail? In this episode, we'll try to answer those questions and explain what it means for the 2020 election now that a prominent congressman has announced his plans to run for president on a third-party line. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. As always, before we can project into the future, we have to look back into the annals of political history.
1: All right, we'll do, we'll do a brief run-through of, of American Party history here.
0: Lee Drutman says the Democratic and Republican parties have been around for centuries, but they weren't founding features of our government. In fact, Lee reminds us, the Founding Fathers were hoping the United States wouldn't have political parties
1: at all. which at the time might have not been a crazy idea since there wasn't that much history of democracy. And they didn't like political parties because they thought that if you had political parties, partisanship and faction would divide the country in half. And this was not an unreasonable fear since they uh, had read their history and and they were concerned about the ways in which self-governing societies broke into civil wars. Uh, And so they set up a system of government that they thought was going to make it very hard for political parties to form because you had separation of powers, bicameral legislature, federalism, uh, all of which they thought would make it really difficult for, for permanent factions to ever really come together.
0: But it soon became apparent that a democracy without
1: political parties just wouldn't work. Modern mass democracy is really impossible without organized political parties, because political parties are really the fundamental institution that structures political conflict in a coherent, meaningful way, engages mass groups of citizens in the political process, allows them to make meaningful choices and to exercise their voice and provide some level of accountability.
0: The first partisan split in the United States was based around support of the Constitution. Put simply, the Federalists backed ratification of the Constitution and a strong federal government. The Anti-Federalists opposed the Constitution and supported stronger state governments.
1: Federalists won, uh, and then basically the, 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 the Federalists kind of split into, well, the Federalists, which basically became the Federalist Party, which was the party of Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and John Adams, and the Democratic Republican Party, which was the party of Jefferson and Madison. And that was a more, you know, of of the people party, the the, the Hamiltonian uh, Federalist Party was more of, a, of an elite party. And they kind of fought back and forth for a few elections. The, the Democratic Republican Party essentially won, and the Federalist Party kind of collapsed. Uh, And you had this era in the 1820s, uh, around 1820, called the era of good feelings when basically there was the one period in the U.S. had basically a one-party system in which the Democratic-Republican Party uh, was the party.
0: But that didn't last for long. Soon, the Democratic-Republican Party would split into two factions. The Democratic Party, led by Andrew Jackson, which carried on the Jeffersonian tradition, and the Whig Party, led by Henry Clay, which was something of an extension of the Hamiltonian Federalists. That continued until the Whig Party splintered over the question of slavery, and the anti-slavery Republican Party was founded in 1854. Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, won the presidency in 1860, and we've had Democratic or Republican presidents ever since. But the parties have taken different forms over time.
1: In at the end of the Civil War, the Democratic Party remains the party of the South for a century, how uh, the Republican Party was the sort of the party of, of of industry and of business and of of new Yankee New England, and that eventually breaks apart with the civil rights uh, revolution of the 1960s Republican Party finally recaptures the South, and in the process they, they become much more conservative and Democratic Party wins wins over much of New England and the coasts and then now we have the uh, party alignment that we have today
0: as Lee explained. Even though what the two parties have stood for and looked like has changed over time, the two-party system has been a part of American democracy almost since the beginning. That's largely a result of the plurality voting system and single-member districts that have been in place in the U.S. for centuries. And at America's birth, the founders didn't really have another model to reference. But as time went on, new models emerged. As other democracies were formed, many of them adopted multiple-member districts and proportional voting systems. In a proportional system, each voting district has multiple seats in the legislature. So the district could have 10 seats, and if one party got 50% of the vote, they would get 5 seats. If another got 30%, they would get 3 seats, and so on. That's in contrast to our plurality voting and single-member districts, where whichever party gets the most vote in an election wins that one seat in that district. A proportional voting system opens up a much bigger opportunity for multiple parties to get a foothold of power. And so, as those kinds of systems took hold in other countries, the U.S.'s two-party system eventually made it an outlier among other democracies.
1: So, the U.S. is, is one of a handful of countries that uses this antiquated system. Uh, the U.K. and Canada are the other major democracies that use it, but the U.S. is, you know, really unique. And uh, you know, I think a lot of folks who spend their entire life in following U.S. politics in the U.S. don't appreciate that the norm among advanced democracies is to have multiple parties. And Lee argues
0: that America would be a lot better off if we took a hint from the vast majority of other modern democracies
1: and added a few more parties to the mix. We all understand that this intense hyper-partisanship is both paralyzing the ability of our government to function and frankly, driving us all crazy and turning us against each other. And I think we've struggled to find a way to stop it because we've accepted the two-party system as just part of the American political fabric. Uh, But once we think outside the two-party system, I think we can see a path forward to making our government work together, making our government work, making uh, us work together as a country. When we take away this uh, perverse set of incentives that uh, the two-party system has created, and our winner-take-all elections have created, which is to not work together, to draw sharper contradictions, to cast the other side as evil, and to win, try to win these narrow governing majorities that, that never actually work out. As soon as we give that up, suddenly uh, a much broader range of possibilities emerges.
0: For proof that the two-party system needs an upgrade, Lee says we need to look no further than the coronavirus pandemic that is currently ongoing.
1: And you know, we're trying to understand, all of us, how 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 many people are dying, how how dangerous is this disease, how much should we be rushing back to work versus continuing to stay at home, even if it continues to stall the economy. And you know, I think the the challenge is that you know, for a lot of folks who think of themselves as Republicans or conservatives maybe see the Republican Party leaders saying, we should get back to work sooner, we should should end these social distancing measures sooner. And they say, well, I don't know about that, but Democrats, you know, want us to stay in our houses forever. So I'm not a Democrat, so I'm going to follow the Republicans because they're going to help me make sense. And they usually stand up for people like me. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what I should do. And that's, you know, that's a basic... Uh, you know, cue following model of politics. And that explains a lot, you know, but at some point there's this moment of disconnect where, you know, do I follow my party or do I do something different? And if you do something different, you're kind of on your own.
0: So what would multi-party democracy look like in America?
1: Probably somewhere between four and six parties is the ideal number of parties because it gives enough choice to voters And enough possibility for different coalitions without too much fracture and fragmentation. I I offer one idea on what a what a five party system might look like, which would I I think would be a a you know social democratic party, think Bernie Sanders, uh, you know sort of you know mainstream Democratic party, think Joe Biden uh, or Amy Klobuchar, uh, a center right party. Uh, You know, I think Mitt Romney, a kind of, you know, traditional conservative party. think Ted Cruz and a kind of populist America First Party. think Donald Trump and maybe a small libertarian party and maybe a small Green Party. Although I think that that small Green Party would probably get folded into the Social Democratic Party.
0: I'll be honest, a scenario like that emerging in the near future is pretty hard for me to imagine. But Lee thinks it might be more possible than you would think. And that the current political dynamics in America make it ripe for the type of large scale change like what he is describing.
1: Here's the thing we have a long history in the US of democracy innovation. And, you know, if you had said we'd have a civil rights revolution uh, in the 60s and you'd told that to people in 1952 they would have said you were crazy if you had said we were going to have women's suffrage or we're going to have direct election of senators or we were going to have primaries elections in 1900 people would have said you're crazy Uh, and we've had these moments in which the status quo has become uh, deeply unacceptable to most americans throughout our history and the progressive era is, is an era in which there are a lot of echoes of today and a high inequality sense that everything is broken. Uh, And so I think we're at a moment in which there is tremendous dissatisfaction with our politics and with our political system. Two thirds of Americans say they'd like to see more than two parties. Uh, More Americans than ever are choosing to register and identify as as independents. We're getting close to 45%, which is something we've never seen before. Uh, So I think there's tremendous hunger for more alternatives and for reform. And I've seen the the tremendous progress that ranked choice voting has been making uh, across cities and, and states as a as a sign that people are willing to to make big changes because a lot of people feel like the, the status quo is not working.
0: Coming up, we'll hear from Politico's Tim Alberta about where the two-party system is headed and discuss the major changes that we are already seeing taking place within the Democratic and Republican parties, even without newer parties being formed. Tim Alberta has covered American politics for decades, following the ups and downs of the two political parties up close. He wrote an entire best-selling book, American Carnage, which traced the evolution of the Republican Party from the party of George W. Bush to the party of Donald Trump. So I asked him what he made of Lee Drutman's assertion that the two-party system could be headed for collapse.
2: Yeah, Gabe, it's a really, really good question. And, and, and the answer to it is this. You know, to understand what I'm about to say and to understand the nuance here, you have to sort of exist in two different worlds. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, in the most literal sense possible, in the most practical way uh, possible, the two-party system isn't going anywhere. But I think within those two parties, you are now seeing fracturing and fragmenting in a way that we've never seen before, and that itself is what's changing politics. So, you know, in in a super literal way, no, the two-party system isn't coming to an end, but in a really, uh, I, I think, sort of inside of that, when you see, you know, Bernie Sanders almost take down the Clinton dynasty in 2016, when you see Donald Trump run from way outside of the Republican Party and ultimately capture its nomination in 2016, when you see the Tea Party disrupt Republican politics the way that it did for four or five years, when you see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez become arguably the most visible member and in some ways the most influential voice in the modern Democratic Party uh, less than two years after being elected to a freshman term in Congress, All of that is pointing very obviously towards something that's happening. So the Democratic and Republican parties are probably
0: here for the long haul. But the changes that have taken place in the last decade, and are likely to continue taking place, almost amount to the creation of new parties, just ones that go by the same names. Even if new parties aren't about to overtake the Democrats and Republicans, it is still worth spending some time considering the third parties that we have right now. Not necessarily because they might suddenly become viable parties in their own rights, but because they can still have a big impact on elections, especially at the presidential level. Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party and became an independent last year, announced his formation of an exploratory committee to consider running for president as a libertarian, a bid he is almost certain to make. What impact could Amash have in the 2020 race? Will he take conservative voters from Trump? or anti-Trump voters from Biden. Tim has covered a mosh for years, from their shared home base in Michigan to the halls
2: of Congress in Washington, D.C. So I asked him to weigh in. So I'm I'm not willing to, at this point anyway, to, to speculate on who it would hurt more, but I can certainly paint the scenarios, uh, Gabe, for, for who it could hurt and why. I think the first scenario is that it does hurt President Trump because... What it ultimately boils down to is Justin Amash um, siphoning away a significant number of those right-leaning voters, people who are uneasy with the president, who don't like the tweeting, who abhor his behavior, who find him to be sort of personally repulsive, and yet... Uh, their conscience could never bring them to vote for a Democrat, and so they were going to step in the booth. And ultimately, many of them were, as I said earlier, going to hold their nose and vote for Donald Trump. Right? That—that uh, that is the one scenario where Justin Amash is able to um, attract a, a significant number, especially from West Michigan, uh, which is the really culturally conservative part of the state, and it happens to be where Amash Congressional district is in the third out near Grand Rapids. Now, how could it hurt Biden? Look, two words, suburban women.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, Donald Trump's weakest constituency right now in the state of Michigan and nationally is with upscale, affluent, two-car garage, college-educated suburban women. These are these are the voters who broke so sharply away from him and the Republican Party in 2018. And Joe Biden has been banking on winning these voters at a historic clip this November. If many of those voters, Gabe, who, who are inclined to be voting uh, traditionally Republican in the first place in, in areas like Oakland County, Michigan, Livingston County, Michigan, in these, in these upper middle class suburbs, where voting Republican has been muscle memory for decades, but now they've begun to gradually drift away from the Republican party. And Joe Biden has been waiting to embrace them with open arms. If if suddenly Justin Amash comes onto the scene and a lot of those voters say, you know what? I can't vote for Trump, but I'm not sure I want to vote for Biden either. You know, especially if it comes down to an issue of being pro-life, which is a, you know, top, a a, a priority issue, a single voting issue for more voters than you might realize in those affluent suburbs, they, they could decide, you know what, I would vote for Biden, but now it's not a binary choice. Now I have an option. I can't vote for Trump, but given the choice between voting for a Democrat or voting for this third party option, maybe I won't vote for Biden after all. That's where it could really hurt the Democratic Party is for some of those voters who are sort of in no man's land at this point, who aren't really Republicans anymore, but they're not quite Democrats either, if they suddenly view this as an opportunity to reject the binary choice that has been foisted upon them, then that could be extraordinarily damaging to Biden. So
0: it may not be clear yet which major party candidate will feel Amasha's impact most strongly, but either way, he seems poised to shake up the race in a big way.
2: Look, you know, all respect to the congressman, he says that he's running to win, and that's what everybody has to say when they run a campaign, but he's he's not going to win. He's not going to be the president of the United States. I mean, barring a, a miracle of truly biblical proportions, he's not going to be the president of the United States, but that doesn't mean that he won't impact the race. Uh, I think you could probably foresee a scenario in which he has the, the biggest impact Uh, as a third-party candidate on a race since Ross Perot. And why could Amash in particular have such a big impact? A lot
0: of it stems from his positioning in Michigan. It's where Amash is known best, and it just so happens to be one of the states that will decide control of the White House in 2020.
2: Amash, especially coming from Michigan, where his name ID is so very high, You know, he told me that his name ID is probably around 1% or 2% nationally, but in Michigan, my hunch is that it's probably north of 70%. And, and you know, just based on everything that he has done, not only in the last five or six years to, to boost his visibility, but really in the last 18 months, um, with everything from leaving the Republican Party to voting for impeachment, you know, this is a guy who calculated or not has really put himself in the spotlight. So Gabe, if, if, if Amash is doing anywhere near what Gary Johnson was doing, uh, four years ago, and that's to say, Gary Johnson took three and a half percent nationally, and Gary Johnson in his home state of New Mexico took nearly ten percent. Mm-hmm. If Justin Amash is taking anywhere near ten percent in Michigan, then that's that's an earthquake. I mean, that that's a that's whether it breaks towards Trump or whether it breaks toward Biden. Either way, that is that is an earth-shattering possibility. If if, if Justin Amash is able to get into the double digits or close to it in a state like Michigan, one of the four or five states that's going to decide this thing next November. When you put it
0: like that, the fact that Amash left the Republican Party in such a dramatic fashion last year, putting him in a position to join a third party and shake up the 2020 race, like Tim is describing, could be seen down the line as a key turning point in the Trump era. But it's also just the latest in years of the kind of restructuring that the two parties have gone through, which Lee Drutman said earlier makes them vulnerable to collapsing. And which Tim says isn't going away in the years to come.
2: You know, we, what we've seen in the last 15 years to 20 years of American politics, you just can't overstate how revolutionary it really is. I mean, I said earlier that that term is a cliche, but everything from, you know, the, the September 11th attacks in 2001 until present day, that last 18 and a half, 19 years of politics has just been unbelievably disruptive. Gabe. And I think on the one hand, I I would tell you that my gut says we are past the point of no return, that that is the new normal, that that politics of disruption within these two parties and between these two parties, that it is now here to stay. And it's and it is what we're going to be dealing with in every election cycle moving forward. But on the other hand, I mean, look, I, for, for starters, I hope that's not the case, because it's so damn exhausting. And, and nobody can Nobody can keep their, their wits about them at this rate. But I think also to the earlier point about durability, I think, I think many voters are feeling that fatigue, right? When Joe Biden is running an entire campaign around this idea of restoring the soul of America, that sounds a little bit lame and a little bit fuzzy and you know abstract, but I think it's purposely fuzzy and abstract he doesn't even need to run on a policy platform at this point as much as he needs to run on this idea of, look, are you all really, really worn down by this, not just Trump, but the last 15 or 20 years? Are you tired of the constant cutthroat, zero-sum, nuclear Armageddon, you know, political fighting? If you are, then... then you know, pull the lever for me, and we'll all take a deep breath together, because this is this has got to stop at a certain point, it's just not sustainable. So whether or not Joe Biden wins in November, whether or not Donald Trump has another four years in the White House, I think there is a scenario one can envision, where in the relatively near future, uh, things begin to calm down a little bit and and, and people begin uh, sort of searching, if not for that common ground, then at least for a shared sentiment that 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 we can't continue at this clip, that, that people, uh, you know, Republican or Democrat, progressive or conservative, need to lay down the swords to some extent, because uh, this is just not a healthy body politic. But... Boy, oh boy, Gabe, the incentive structures that exist today that inform our modern politics and the way that we elect people, the way that we re-elect people, the way campaigns are run, the way that we have self-selected into demographic and geographic and cultural silos, none of that uh, bodes terribly well for uh, any of this dying down or cooling off in the near future.
0: Up to Politics is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer of On Demand and Content Partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. Thank you to Lee Jutman and Tim Alberta for helping us look under the hood of the two-party system as it stands today. You can find both of their fascinating books, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop and American Carnage, anywhere books are sold.